Well, we return this morning to our study in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, so turn there with me. And we find ourselves this morning in the middle of a study on the power of a godly example. The power of a godly example. It was the Puritan preacher Thomas Brooks that we mentioned last time who said that example is the most powerful rhetoric. Example is the most powerful rhetoric. In other words, you could lay out principles and inform men and women of their duty, and you can use all the finest tools of rhetoric and oratory and persuasion, but all of that will only take you so far. Something about the way that we're wired causes us to benefit so much more when we move from the tell me what to the show me how. And that's why biblical discipleship is so important in the life of the church. As each of us seeks to grow in the grace and knowledge of Lord Jesus Christ, and as each of us seeks to to pass on to the next generation the pattern of sound words that we have received in the sacred tradition of Holy Scripture, we do that in the context of relationships. The biblical model for discipleship is life on life, a relationship in which those who are younger in the faith can, as Hebrews 13, 7 says, observe the outcome of their way of life, of those who are more mature, and as a result, can imitate their faith. Speaking about this, Pastor John writes, perhaps the single most important aspect of spiritual leadership is having a godly life to emulate. Personal example illustrates biblical principles in action, showing how they should be lived out. You see, we know the principles laid out in Scripture well enough, but we need to see how these principles translate into action in the the theater of a real, tangible, godly example lived out right in front of us. And the Apostle Paul, who, of course, knows the power of a godly example, who knows the benefit of an exemplary life to pattern oneself after, provides just that in Philippians chapter 2, verses 17 through 30. See, ever since chapter 1, verse 27, Paul has been instructing the Philippians to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ the gospel by which they have been saved, and the gospel now by which they will be sanctified. And in doing that, he's been piling up precept upon precept, principle upon principle, duty upon duty. He's called them to true biblical unity in the opening verses of chapter 2. And because unity in the church cannot be achieved without humility, he calls them in verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3, to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind to regard one another as more important than yourselves. He says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And so we need, he's called them to unity and then the humility through which that unity will be achieved. And then he gives them the supreme example of humility, perfectly embodied in our Lord Jesus Christ, who left the glories of heaven to live and die as a man in order to pay for the sins of his people. And in verse 5, he commands the Philippians to have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, to imitate the humble and selfless sacrificial service exemplified in the gospel of Christ. And then, on the basis of that humility-driven gospel, Paul calls them in verse 12 to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work within you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, the pursuit of personal holiness 
will work itself out particularly, as we learn in verse 14, as the Philippians do all things without grumbling or disputing. So he's commanded them generally, saying, work out your salvation. And then he's commanded them particularly, saying, do all things without grumbling or disputing. They need to banish complaining from their lives because the holy standard of life that God's people are called to simply cannot be attained when they're bickering and grumbling and disputing with one another. So instead, Paul calls them not to complaining, but to blamelessness, to be blameless, verse 15, to live in a manner that those around them who are observing their behavior would never be able to advance any legitimate criticism when comparing their lives to the commands of Scripture. And he also calls them to be innocent, blameless and innocent, a word that literally means unmixed. And it was used of describing undiluted wine and unalloyed metal. The idea is that they were to be pure and unmixed, not only to be blameless in their outward behavior, but to have integrity internally, having a pure inner life. And then as a combination of those, Paul calls them to be above reproach which translates a word that was used to speak of the unblemished Old Testament sacrifices that were required to be offered to Yahweh. And so it's in the face of that kind of standard that we can begin to feel a little burdened and a little frustrated. Be unified. Be humble. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Have the same attitude as in, that was in Christ Jesus. Work out your salvation. Do all things without complaining. Be blameless. Be innocent. Be above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. It just seems impossible. We hear that standard and we survey our own lives and we wonder, how in the world could I ever live up to that? And in fact, because we know our own weakness, we often, considering that standard, we could tend to lose hope. We can become discouraged. And we can start to think that this kind of standard of holy living, well, that was only available to the apostles, or that was only available to the disciples who walked with Jesus, or that was only available to the the Christians in the early church, such a pure form of the church, or maybe it was just, it's only available to pastors and missionaries, people who have some sort of vocational call into ministry, or maybe it's just the people who grew up in Christian homes and they had that from the beginning of their lives instilled into them, and now it's just second nature. And we just go right on down the list, accepting ourselves, accepting, E-X-C, accepting ourselves, no matter what, as much as we can, because, hey, that just seems impossible. And before you know it, as we do that, we begin to lose the battle with sin. But Paul understands the power of example. He understands that announcing precepts and principles and duties can only go so far in helping the people of God live a life of holiness. That's necessary, but it only goes so far. To show the people of God that this kind of life is possible, and not only possible, but necessary for all who name the name of Jesus Christ. In verses 17 to 30, he turns to give three real-life flesh and blood examples of this gospel-driven life that he's calling them to. Three gospel-driven ministers who show us what it looks like for human beings with a nature just like ours to put into practice these principles and precepts that he's been commanding them. In these verses, we observe what it looks like to lay our lives down in the joyful service of Christ and his people in a manner that is worthy of the gospel by which we have been saved. 
So we have the example of Paul, the apostle himself, in verses 17 and 18. We have the example of Timothy in verses 19 to 24. And we have Epaphroditus in verses 25 through 30. You have an apostle, you have a young pastor in training, and you have a dedicated layman. Examples that run the gamut of the different roles in the Christian life so that none of us is left without an example that we can relate with. And in our last time together, we considered the Apostle Paul's example in uh, verses 17 and 18. And in that text, Paul compared the entirety of his life of ministry all of his apostolic running and toiling and laboring for the progress and joy in the faith of the Gentiles. He compares all that to the labors of an Old Testament priest endeavoring to offer a holy sacrifice to God. And as he faces his potential martyrdom, he says that if indeed this sacrificial ministry will end in death, he won't be discouraged. He'll rejoice because his death in the service of Christ and for the Philippians progress in the gospel, progress in holiness, that'll just be to him the drink offering, the fitting climax that completes the sacrifice of his ministry. If his death will serve to make his offering of the Philippians more acceptable to God, he's not sorrowful. He rejoices because he knows that his life could not be better spent than in the cause of the holiness of the people of God. And so, we were instructed last time to follow his example, not in the sense of, of going out and seeking to die a martyr's death, but by dying to ourselves daily, each day, joyfully laying down our lives upon the altar of service to the people of God, knowing that the greatest sacrifice for Christ brings the greatest fellowship with Christ. But this week, we'll focus our attention upon the second gospel-driven minister in this gallery of examples, Timothy. As Paul makes his travel plans known to the, the Philippians, beginning in verse 19, we see so much more than historical records of ancient itineraries. We're guided and instructed in our own service of Christ by observing the example of one of his choicest servants. So let's read verses 19 through 24 together. Paul writes, but I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me, and I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. Now, what's plain, even as we read those verses, is that this profile of Timothy in which Paul holds him out as an example to the Philippians comes in the context, in the historical context of Paul's travel plans. Paul, of course, would love to come to the Philippians immediately and see his beloved friends face to face. We've mentioned multiple times that there was a unique bond between Paul and the Philippians. They had uniquely shared in his ministry in ways that other churches and other Christians hadn't. And so there was that deep bond. And so he'd love to be there now, right now, yesterday. But he's on house arrest in Rome. He's chained 18 inches from a Roman soldier waiting to stand trial before Nero, waiting to to find out whether he's going to live or die. And so he can't go himself. 
And in place of immediately returning to Philippi in person then, he's decided to, to write this letter that we call the, the book of Philippians, which he'll send back to them with Epaphroditus. But then after sending Epaphroditus, he tells the Philippians that he'll also send Timothy to them. He says in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. Now, the word hope doesn't carry the same connotations as it does in English in Greek. In English, saying, I hope to send him shortly, communicates something of uh, a degree of uncertainty. You know, I hope, that I, I hope to send him soon, but you know, it might not work out. But that's not the case in Greek. I like to think of it this way. In Greek, hope is faith in the future tense. Faith in the future tense. It speaks of a settled confidence, a definite trust, and even an expectation. It's not a, a whimsical, oh, I hope this might happen, but I'm confident that this will happen in the Lord Jesus. In fact, Paul says that very thing in a parallel phrase in verse 24. He says, and I trust in the Lord. I trust in the Lord that I myself will be coming shortly. And that's the same word, uh, that trust there, that he uses in chapter 1, verse 25, when he says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. So he's convinced of it. He's confident in it. He trusts in it. He hopes in it. But as confident as Paul is in his plans, his thinking is so dominated by the lordship of Jesus Christ that he submits even his travel plans to the will of the Lord. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy. And again in verse 24, and I trust in the Lord that I will be coming shortly. I love this. Paul's not just thoughtlessly tacking on a prepackaged phrase like, like Lord willing out of habit or for the sake of superstition. He means it. It's just further evidence that in the smallest of ways, down to his travel plans and his, his way of speaking, how deeply the gospel has permeated Paul's mind and his life. At every moment, the man was conscious of the fact that Jesus is Lord, that he upholds all things by the word of his power, that in him all things hold together. And he won't even be so presumptuous as to make even travel plans without submitting them to the omnipotent lordship of Christ. And we can learn from that. You know, our relationship with the Lord needs to be so healthy, our prayer life so constant, that we consciously acknowledge his meticulous providence in all of our daily dealings. And so, as the Lord is gracious... Paul will send Timothy to the Philippians, and our text tells us that he has two reasons for sending him. And the first we see in the second half of verse 19. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. So Paul plans to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi to deliver the letter to them. And then, after a while, he'll send Timothy as well. And then apparently he expects to meet up with Timothy again, whether back in Rome or some other place, at which time Timothy will give a report to him about the condition of the Philippian church since receiving his letter from Epaphroditus. And Paul is so confident that Timothy will bring a positive report that Paul says he knows he'll be encouraged. I know that I'll be encouraged when I hear of your condition from Timothy. That's genius shepherding right there. That's genius. By sending Timothy a little bit after Epaphroditus and by letting them know that Timothy's coming to report to him about their condition, Paul's making them accountable to the instruction that he's delivering in this letter. 
He's allowing for, for some time to pass, for Epaphroditus to get there and for Timothy to get there so that there can be a legitimate opportunity to make application of his commands and his exhortations. See, they now know that they need to put into practice his exhortations to unity and to humility. You know, Euodia and Syntyche are put on notice. They know that Timothy will be checking in on them and that he's going to be giving report to Paul. And they now know that they need to apply his instructions about remaining steadfast in the midst of persecution and against the threat of false teaching. That they need to apply his instruction about serving one another sacrificially and with joy. And they know that, that they will encourage Paul by their obedience or discourage him by their disobedience. And that would be all the motivation they needed to straighten up and fly right. Because the very last thing they wanted to do was to give their dear pastor any reason to be discouraged while he remained confined in a Roman prison, potentially facing his martyrdom. But even in keeping them accountable like this, Paul doesn't hold it over their head like a a cruel taskmaster or an unconcerned foreman. Like a parent entreating his children, he expresses his every confidence that they will faithfully and obediently apply his exhortations for their own progress and joy in the faith. And as a result of their own growth and holiness, Paul will be encouraged. And then he gives a second reason for why he's sending Timothy in verse 23. That was verse 19. This is 23. It's not only so that he'll be encouraged by Timothy's good report of the Philippians, but also so that Timothy can inform them of the circumstances surrounding Paul's trial. Verse 23, he says, Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. So it's been plain already throughout the letter that the Philippians had been concerned for Paul's well-being while he was in prison. That's why he so emphasizes his own rejoicing, because he doesn't want the Philippians to be overly worried about how he's doing. And now, since he's sending Epaphroditus with the letter, they're not going to receive any, any news regarding Nero's decision about Paul's trial, because he's coming right away. He's coming immediately. And then when Timothy arrives, the first thing they're going to ask him is, what's the news? Is Paul going to live or is he going to die? What did Nero say? So Paul delays in sending Timothy until he can report clearly about Paul's fate. He'll be able to relay news of the verdict straight from the horse's mouth. And surely Paul wouldn't have wanted to send his dear son in the faith on what would be a a three-month journey round trip from Rome to Philippi back to Rome without any further clarity if he'd ever see Paul again. And that would be a burden too great for Timothy to bear. Besides that, as much as Paul loved Timothy as a father would his own son, I'm sure that he would have wanted Timothy by his side for support while he waited to receive the news of his impending martyrdom. And so Paul will send Timothy shortly as soon as he receives definitive word from Rome about whether he'll live or die. So that on the the one hand, Timothy can relay that information to the Philippians and hopefully encourage them with a positive report. And also on the other hand, so that Timothy can return and report back to Paul regarding the church's progress as a result of the letter and thus encourage him as well. And after all that, verse 24, Paul confidently trusts that the Lord will have him visit the Philippians in person after too long. He says in verse 24, and I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. 
So it's in this historical context, then, that Paul provides a profile of Timothy's exemplary service. As dear as Timothy was to the Philippians, you could understand if they were a bit disappointed to see him rather than Paul himself. And so Paul outlines to the Philippians his plans to send Timothy as his emissary, and he also delineates Timothy's credentials. And that serves both to encourage the Philippians to receive Timothy without hesitation. You may be disappointed, but receive him nonetheless, as well as to provide them with a clear example of the kind of exemplary gospel-driven life that he's calling them to lead throughout his letter. And that's where we find that this text is speaking very clearly to us today. In Paul's description of Timothy in verses 20 to 22, we can isolate six characteristics of a gospel-driven minister that we should imitate and implement in our own lives. Six characteristics of Timothy that we should cultivate in our own walk with the Lord. And that first characteristic that we should imitate is that he is a committed disciple. He is a committed disciple. Verse 20, Paul says, For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. I have no one else of kindred spirit that really is the proper translation of that Greek word there. If you have the ESV or the NIV, it says, I have no one else like him. But that kind of gives the impression that Paul's comparing Timothy to others. And at this point, he's not doing that yet. What he's, what he's saying is he's got no one else who is so much like him, like Paul, as Timothy is. I have no one else who's a kindred spirit like me. The phrase translates the Greek word isopsukos, which is used only here in the New Testament. It's a, it's a compound word made up of the word psuche, which is the word for soul. It's where we get words in English like psyche or psychology. And isos, which means equal. So the term means to be equal or to be united in soul, S-O-U-L. To be like-minded, or as the NAS translates it, to be of kindred spirit. Paul's saying that he's going to send Timothy to the Philippians because there's no one else who is so like-minded with Paul, no one else whose heart so beats with his heart, no one else whose soul is so patterned after his own soul, no one else who's, who shares his affections and his concerns in such a profound way. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In that text, we gain some remarkable insight into how like-minded Timothy was with Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 16. Paul tells the Corinthians, Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. Okay, so that's what he's after. He wants the Corinthians to be imitators of him. How's he going to do that? For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. That's amazing. Paul exhorts the Corinthians to imitate him, and for this reason, in order that the Corinthians should learn how to imitate Paul, he sends Timothy. He calls them his beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He says, he'll remind you of my ways. Timothy had walked with Paul throughout most of his apostolic ministry. Ever since Paul had picked him up in Lystra in Acts 16, Timothy had been at Paul's side, laboring for the cause of the gospel. 
And after all those years, Timothy was so well acquainted with Paul's ways, so much so that they became his ways. After speaking with Paul and traveling with Paul and praying with Paul and hearing Paul preach and teach, Timothy came to think like Paul. He came to evaluate situations like Paul would evaluate them and to trust the Lord like Paul trusted the Lord, to pray like Paul, and probably even to preach and teach like Paul. So much was this the case that Paul could send Timothy to Corinth in order to remind them of his ways. And that's the goal of true discipleship, isn't it? The goal of true discipleship is reproduction of the teacher and the disciple. I mean, didn't Jesus say that very thing? Luke 6, 40, everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. And so Timothy was fully trained. He was a committed disciple. He'd been such a devoted student of Paul that Paul could say that they were equal in soul, equal in soul. And my question to you this morning is, do you know anything of this kind of relationship? Is there someone in your life that you are following as they follow Christ? Someone who is more mature in the faith, whose committed disciple you are becoming? Now, I'm not talking about following men. I'm not talking about you know, be- becoming uh, you know, some you know, name and name and then ists, MacArthurites, you know, Phil Johnsonists. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about following more mature brothers and sisters as they follow Christ. I'm talking about following Christ by following an older brother or sister in the Lord. Who is your Paul? What godlier man or woman are you spending time with? Are you ministering with? Are you serving with? Are you laboring with? With whom you're becoming equal in soul? With whom you're becoming a kindred spirit? And then on the other side, who's your Timothy? Some of you might be thinking, now wait a second, I don't want anybody following me. I've got so much stuff wrong with me, just no thank you. You don't want to do that. Well, it's good that you recognize that, but it's good that you recognize that so that you can get busy fixing it. What a motivation, right? There are people in this congregation that are less mature even than you are. I know it might be hard to believe. Uh, and they need a pattern. They need to see what it looks like to be faithful to Christ. That pattern of faithfulness lived out right in front of them because we're all at different stages. And what a wonderful motivation to fix yourself, to recognize that that's a proper sense of humility to say, ooh, I don't know if I want people following me around. But then and say, you know what, why not? If I'm following Christ, if I'm being faithful, I should be able to have somebody watch my life and doctrine closely and benefit from that. Even your desire to serve the body of Christ can motivate you to cleanse your own life. There are younger couples here in Grace Life, which I love, I'm so glad you're here, who need to see what it looks like to be a faithful husband and a faithful wife over 30 and 40 and 50 years of marriage. They need to see what it looks like to raise their kids in a way that's consistent with biblical principles. What does it mean, you know, to raise your child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord when they're squirting milk all over the place and screaming and painting the walls? They need to see that lived out in front of them. They need to see what it is to walk with the Lord for decades. Some of the richest resources we have in this group of these senior saints, some of you who have been Christians more than twice as long as I've been alive. 
I mean, that's a treasure chest of wisdom and example. Stop laughing. <laughs> that part wasn't in my notes. I probably should have left that out. But, but we need to see. We, I include myself, we need to see, dear friends, that example lived out in front of us, what it means to walk faithfully and not capitulate to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life over decades, to stand, to persevere, to endure, and not to waver. It is so necessary, so necessary, friends, for all of us to be actively engaged in life-on-life discipleship in this church. Because God has designed that the Christian life be lived in community. Who is your Paul? Who is your Timothy? So the first characteristic of Timothy that we want to imitate is that he is a committed disciple. And the second characteristic of Timothy, worthy of imitation, is that he's a compassionate shepherd. He's a compassionate shepherd. Let's look again at verse 20. Paul writes, For I have no one else of kindred spirit, who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. See, the primary manifestation of Paul and Timothy's being of kindred spirit, the primary manifestation of that in regards to Timothy's mission to the Philippians is his genuine concern for their spiritual welfare. And this word concern, it's actually quite a fascinating word. It means to have a strong feeling for something or someone, often to the point of being burdened. Paul actually uses this word later in the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verse 6, where in that context, it's translated as anxious. And in that text, Paul commands us to be anxious for nothing. But here in our text, Paul commends Timothy for that genuine concern for the Philippians. Now, is that a contradiction? Of course not, no. This is an instance in which the same word can be used in multiple ways and bear different connotations. Negatively, it refers to the kind of anxiety that comes from the the selfish worrying about your own life circumstances. That's the sense in chapter 4, verse 6. But in the context of our passage, it's referring to the compassionate and sympathetic concern for a fellow believer's spiritual needs. So you're not worrying about your own life's physical circumstances. You're worried in a good sense. You're concerned, burdened in a good sense, in a sympathetic sense, for the spiritual progress of your fellow believers. Paul used this word in that positive sense to speak of his own concern for his brothers and sisters in Christ. In that familiar passage in 2 Corinthians 11, down in verse 28, he's been been listing all of his tribulations and trials that he's experiencing as a result of his apostolic ministry, night and day in the deep, in cold and exposure, in dangers from robbers, rivers, and so on. And then he tops all of that off by saying in 2 Corinthians 11, 28, Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern, that's our word, for all the churches. See, Paul wasn't just some disinterested demagogue like the preachers today who preach via flat screen to tens of thousands of people hundreds of miles away, only preoccupied with the amount of people that they can superficially influence. No, Paul was a a compassionate shepherd who genuinely cared for the spiritual well-being of those churches he had helped found, who was intimately familiar with the spiritual lives and spiritual progress that his people were making. And Timothy followed in Paul's footsteps. 
Since Timothy's heart beat with the Apostle Paul's heart, he shared Paul's genuine concerns for the Philippians' progress and holiness. Timothy shared the daily pressure of concern for all the churches, and especially with the Philippian church. I mean, not only was Timothy in Philippi when the church was founded, but he also returned to minister to that congregation at least two other times, according to the book of Acts. Once, about five years after that first visit in Acts 19.22, you can read about that. And then again, about a year after that, which we hear about in Acts 20, verses 3 through 6. And so, as a true, compassionate shepherd, Timothy's foremost concern was for the welfare of his sheep. Now you say, but Mike, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a Bible study shepherd. I don't have any sheep. Well, this, is, this kind of genuine concern for one another's spiritual well-being isn't limited to preachers and Bible study leaders. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul uses this same word in reference to the members of the body of Christ as they care for one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 24 says that God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable, so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for one another. So, verse 26, 1 Corinthians 12, 26, he says, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. We are intimately connected to one another. We have the same concern for one another, the same burden for each other's well-being. In Grace Life, are you characterized by this genuine concern for others' spiritual health? Are you burdened by the desire for your brothers and sisters to be advancing in holiness, to be growing in the Lord? I know that you are because of what we talked about at the beginning, and I encourage you to excel still more. This text doesn't mean burden just enough to complain about how everyone else is so immature. Like, oh, I'm so burdened by your immaturity. <laughs> Paul and Timothy, weren't, they weren't just irked by the immaturity or the weakness of the churches. They were so truly concerned in spirit that they got up and they did something about it. They laid down their lives for the believer's progress and joy in the faith. And oh, that the Lord would inflame us with a passion for corporate holiness, not just for individual holiness, but for corporate holiness that we would be a people who joyfully give of our time and our energy and our effort and even our financial resources in order to ensure that our brothers and sisters are progressing in holiness. And that brings us then to the third characteristic of Timothy that we ought to imitate in our own lives. First, he's a committed disciple. Second, he's a compassionate shepherd. And now number three, he is a single-minded worshiper. He is a single-minded worshiper. Look at verse 21. Paul writes, For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Now, if Paul's saying that he couldn't send other messengers, we'll talk about that in a second. If Paul's saying that he couldn't send other messengers uh, because they all seek after their own interests, but that he can send Timothy, well, that implies that he can send Timothy because Timothy doesn't seek his own interests. Timothy does seek the interests of Christ Jesus. He's single-minded in his worship and devotion to Christ. He single-mindedly seeks the interests of Christ Jesus. And in this context, interests of Christ Jesus have to do with love for the Lord that would express itself in love for neighbor. 
and particularly caring for the congregation at Philippi. Now, this statement of Paul's is absolutely amazing, and it's a little disconcerting. Martin Lloyd-Jones paraphrases it helpfully. He writes, speaking as if he was Paul, The trouble for me here in Rome is that though I'm surrounded by these Christian people, the only man I can send to you is Timothy. For alas, he says about the others, I admit that they're Christians. They're good people in many ways, but they're more concerned about themselves and their own things than the things of Christ Jesus. Christians, people who are genuinely saved, people who are so immature and so self-centered that when Paul asked them to go, all they had were excuses. Or maybe worse yet, before Paul even asked them, just as he considered them in his mind and remembered their character and what he knew about them, he just dismissed them as unqualified. I suppose we shouldn't be too surprised, considering the caliber of preachers that were in Rome in Paul's day. We learned from chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, that there were preachers in Rome who were preaching Christ from envy and strife and out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives. Genuine believers, preachers, who were so twisted in their affections that they preached more for their own prominence rather than the gospel's advance, more to cause Paul distress while he was in prison because they were competing with him out of a sense of competition. And we want to have the notoriety, Paul, like you have, so we're going to we're going to step on the man at the top to get to the top. And so these kinds of self-absorbed men are not those who are willing to drop everything at the order of this apostle and embark on a 40 days journey that almost killed Epaphroditus. We learn that in the next section, right? Epaphroditus almost died. He came very close to death in completing what was lacking in your service and coming to me. So this is 40 days. I mean, that's a long time. Central Italy to Northern Greece, that, that's a, a long journey when you're not on an airplane. And so long enough that Epaphroditus almost died, came near death. People who love their own things, people who are selfish, people who are not sold out, don't drop everything and do something like that. Their interests were divided. They were believers, but their interests were divided. And unlike Timothy, they just couldn't be depended on. See, they dabbled in Christian ministry. You know, a little bit over here, a little bit over there. They dabbled in Christian ministry, but they weren't sold out for Christ and his church. They were Christians on Sunday, maybe Wednesday night. But they put Christ on the shelf. They put their Bible on the shelf and took care of their own lives. They're their lives. Hey, I have a right to enjoy life. And they were worthless, useless to the Apostle Paul. And and friends, we don't want this to be said of us. We don't want this to be said of us. What a sad case we would be if our leaders and our overseers were made aware of a need for service and considered in their minds all of those entrusted into their care whom they might call on to meet this need and then said to you or himself about you, no, she won't do it. No, she, she seeks her own interests, not the interests of Christ. No, he's a good brother, but he hasn't left that place of spiritual immaturity where concern for his own plans chokes out his desire to lay down his life for others. He won't give up his Saturday. She won't give up her her vacation. 
You know, they really don't like company. They really prefer to be private, left alone. Friends, may this not be said of us, not us. May it not be said of Grace Life that when your pastors and elders and Bible study shepherds run their eyes across this room to see who would be willing to pour themselves out upon the sacrifice and service of the faith of their fellow believers, pour themselves out as a drink offering, that they would have to feel the pang of shame and sadness that Paul felt as he penned these words about the believers in Rome. No, we, we don't want that of, of ourselves. We want to comport ourselves in such a way that when the, a need arises, we're the first person that our leaders think of to, to the, that they can go to for assistance. And that as they think of us, they won't think, oh, you know, you know, he would be great for that, but he just remains too in love with himself and his own affairs to get involved. But rather, no, now there is a man of the same soul of myself. There is a woman who will be genuinely concerned for the spiritual well-being of these dear people. There is a family that doesn't merely look out for their own personal interests, but seeks their joy, seeks their joy in the interests of others who, who single-mindedly seek the interests of Christ Jesus as the very native joys of their heart. Are we ready, dear friends? Are we ready? not only to lay down our lives in sacrificial service for the progress and joy of our brothers and sisters in Christ, but also to be known as those kinds of people, to have a track record, to be known because of your proven worth, Paul will say in the next phrase, as one who can be depended upon. And if not, what in our lives has to change for this to be so? What rearrangements do we have to make because we need to make them. Well, we need to move quickly to the fourth characteristic of Timothy that's, in this, that's exemplary for us. Number four, he's a tested workman. He is a tested workman. Verse 22 says, but you know of his proven worth. But you know of his proven worth. And we'll stop there for now. You know, Philippians, of Timothy's proven worth. And that phrase translates the single Greek word dokime which is a cognate of that familiar word, dakimos, which was used in the ancient world for assaying metals and for testing coins to prove their purity and genuineness. A coin that was dakimos had to be tested by fire and had to, had to come through the fire and be found genuine. The dross of a metal would, would be burned away and the pure silver would emerge refined. And what you would have at that point was a precious metal's proven worth. And just as the metal would need to pass through the fire before it could be proven, so is one who was dokimos needed. He needed to endure the furnace of affliction. This word's often associated with trials in the New Testament. Romans 5, 3, and 4, Paul says that the Christian exults in tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance brings about proven character. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2, Paul says of the Macedonians, probably actually even including the Philippians, he says, in a great ordeal of affliction, in a great dokime of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. See, they were found to be genuine believers when their faith survived the fires of deep poverty and affliction and manifested itself in sacrificial giving. 
And Paul's saying, Philippians, you know Timothy. You know him. You know he's been through the furnace of affliction as he's served alongside me for all these years. You know he is a tested workman, a genuine servant of Christ. You know that as I found him there in Lystra, he was being well spoken of by all the brethren there, showing himself even then to be an example of the faith to all the brethren. I was so impressed with his devotion that I took him right along with me in the middle of my second missionary journey. And you know how he agreed to leave the comfort of his own family and the only familiar surroundings he had ever known to come to minister the gospel with me in the severest of affliction. You know how he agreed even to be circumcised, though I taught him that circumcision is nothing in the eyes of God. He was so committed to the gospel that he was willing to spare no pain to avoid putting stumbling blocks in the gospel's way. Oh, Philippians, you know of his proven worth. And because of that, I want you to not only receive him, but to find in him an example worthy of being imitated. I want you to learn from him how to pass through those fires of affliction and suffering even as you face your opposition to this day. And just to reiterate, again, by way of application, we want our overseers and our shepherds to think of us like Paul thought of Timothy. We want them to consider us for a task of service, and we want their reaction to be immediate reassurance of our proven character, of our integrity, of our tested usefulness in gospel service over a period of time. We want them to think of us and have them say, that sister is proven. That, dear brother, has been tested in the furnace of the affliction that comes with actual gospel ministry, and he is an asset to me. But in order for that to happen, we've got to make ourselves known. You've got to make yourselves known to your shepherds, to make yourselves accountable to your shepherds, and to make yourselves useful to them. Being willing to be diligent, to be faithful in little before we're trusted to be faithful in much. And that brings us to number five. Timothy is a committed disciple, a compassionate shepherd, a single-minded worshiper, a tested workman, and he is also a humble evangelist, a humble evangelist. Let's look again at verse 22. But you know, Paul says, of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel. He served with me in the furtherance of the gospel. This is the measure of Timothy's testing. This is the evidence of his proven worth, that he had an enduring commitment to minister the gospel alongside the Apostle Paul, come what may. And in this verse, Paul continues his emphasis on the the gospel of Christ. And we've said before that the God, and I haven't said it in a while, so I'll repeat it, that the word gospel, euangelion, is repeated nine times in the letter to the Philippians. And that's the most frequent of any of Paul's letters. It's also repeated nine times in Romans, but Romans is four times as long as Philippians. So Paul's concern, as we've been saying all along, is about the gospel and what it means to live a gospel-driven life. Chapter 1, verse 5, he celebrated the Philippians' participation and partnership in the gospel. Chapter 1, verse 7, he speaks of their sharing in his defense and confirmation of the gospel. Verse 12, he rejoices in the advance of the gospel. Verse 16, he's been appointed to defend the gospel. Chapter 4, verse 3, he speaks about his struggle in the cause of the gospel. And of course, chapter 1, verse 27, the thesis verse, we're all called to conduct every aspect of our lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. 
And here in our text that we learn that Paul's love and passion for the gospel had been successfully planted in the heart of Timothy. Timothy was just as gospel-driven as his dear father in the faith. And that led him to follow in the footsteps of the humility of the Lord Jesus, the humility. The word served there in verse 22 is the Greek word douluo, which is the verb form of doulos. Douluo would be to perform the duties of a slave. You could translate that phrase, he slaved alongside me in the furtherance of the gospel. You see, Timothy had in himself the same attitude which was in Christ Jesus. And as one who is genuinely concerned for the Philippians' welfare, he has, like the Lord Jesus also, verse 7, chapter 2, verse 7, taken the form of a slave, and he laid down his life in the cause of gospel ministry. I want you to see that parallel there between Timothy and Christ. Timothy followed Paul, but Timothy followed Paul as he followed Christ. And as Paul was willing to be obedient unto death, just like Christ was, chapter 2, verse 8, Timothy was willing to take the form of a slave, chapter 2, verse 7, and lay down his life for his friends. And we need to do the same. We need to do the same. Well, that brings us finally then to the sixth characteristic of Timothy that we ought to imitate in our own lives. Number six, Timothy is a loyal son. He is a loyal son. One last time in verse 22, but you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. And in that brief phrase, Paul draws attention to the fact that Timothy's humble and submissive service was not rendered as the disinterested duty of a cold professional, but rather as it overflowed out of the warm-hearted loyalty that a son has for his father. And Paul has often called Timothy his son. We read 1 Corinthians 4.17 earlier where he calls Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. He opens his first letter to Timothy by saying, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. And again, in 2 Timothy, to Timothy, my beloved son. In all those references, just as the reference here, Paul doesn't use the the word weos. He uses the Greek word technon. Weos speaks more of the generic, what's a kind of a generic word for sonship. But technon speaks of an intimate personal relationship, my child. And that imagery, it calls upon the customs of family life in the Greco-Roman world as it related to the son learning the family trade from working alongside the father. Just as a, a young son would be thrilled to be working alongside the dad, the father, who he considered his hero. Just as a a son would literally follow his father's steps, begin to walk like him, begin to talk like him, to adopt his facial expressions and his tones of voice, and even his catchphrases, certainly the ways of going about performing the trade that he was training to do. So did Timothy serve Paul as a son. Never once does the devoted son grumble at the task at hand. No, his loyalty to the father he dearly loves keeps him serving alongside him joyfully, humbly, and happily. Well, I trust then that the exemplary character of Timothy's life has been sufficiently exposed and explained to you this morning. And I pray that the loveliness and the virtue of his life has enticed your heart with the desire to imitate him, to follow his example as he follows Christ. To be a committed disciple, number one, actively committed to following in the footsteps of a more mature brother or sister who can lead you in the path of holiness. 
to be a compassionate shepherd, even if you don't have any sheep, even if you're not an official leadership capacity, but as one who bears the burden of concern for the spiritual welfare and maturity of your fellow believers, such that it leads you to lay down your lives in sacrificial service to them. To be a a single-minded worshiper, not driven by the ever-changing whims of your own personal interests, but to be sold out and single-mindedly devoted to Christ and his church to be a tested workman, to make yourselves known and accountable and useful to your shepherds in service, even enduring the afflictions that might come in participating in that kind of gospel ministry, to be a humble evangelist, willing to take the role of a slave if it means that the gospel will advance, and then to be a loyal son or loyal daughter, eagerly and happily serving the body of Christ, your brothers and sisters, knowing that it delights the heart of your heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this would be a reality made among us, that you would send your spirit to work, that you would cause him to open our eyes to the loveliness of Christ, and that we would thereby be transformed in our affections as we behold the glory of the Lord, even the glory of the Lord reflected in lives of men like Paul and Timothy, and thereby be transformed into that same image. I'm so thankful again. I want to express my thanks to you again for this dear group of people who has manifested that already. We thank you for the grace that you've given them in their lives to be able to walk in obedient fruitfulness in this area and cause us all to excel still more. Cause us to not be burdened and and, uh, frustrated by the example that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ in in the Apostle Paul and Timothy and even later Epaphroditus. Cause us to see that it's possible that it's possible and it's expected and there's joy there and that there's blessing there and that's everything that I want. I want to be, we all want to be in the center of your blessing. Show us that that obedience really does provide our greatest joy. Show us that it really is finding our lives when we lose our lives for the gospel's sake. And now send us, we ask, across the patio to worship again as the united assembly in spirit and truth that the Lord Jesus may get what he is worthy of in his church. We pray in his name. Amen.